If you are visiting today, my very warm welcome to you. It's great to have you here today. If you're online and watching, it's also great to, to have you tuning in. Uh, thank you, Heather, for, for reading from the first chapter of the book of Philippians. I hope you have your journals with you. You got your journals with you? Good. If you don't have a journal, I think there are some more out the, out the front there, hopefully. A few, few left. Who's been reading through this letter this week? Have you enjoyed that process? I read it. I yeah. it. It's great. It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to be reading God's Word together in your families or individually, but uh, grab hold of this and, and try and get through it another couple of times this week in, in one sitting. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, you may... Well, I guess you've all been recipients... Uh, from time to time, for, from different types of marketing letters, right? You know the types you get when they sort of might start like this. Uh, to whom it may concern. Or there might be a marketing letter that comes to you with some form of uh, fake familiarity, where it says, dear valued customer. You've all seen those, haven't you? You know, the only thing the marketers uh, consider dear is that maybe you'll spend some money with them, all right? Uh, and it's interesting, in the New Testament, sometimes we read uh, the very first verses of uh, letter introductions, like the one we've read this morning, and we may also consider that they're just sort of a stack, uh, a stock-type introduction, Right? We may consider, well, all that is telling us is who the author is, who the recipients are. And potentially there may be a, a greeting of wishes and blessing. But I'll tell you what, to, to view these first few verses of any letter in that sort of way is a mistake. We shouldn't think of Paul's standard opening thoughts as some thoughtless template, a bit like a male merge function. On the surface, all of his letters may seem similar, but they actually introduce some key themes that will be developed throughout the letter. Some key themes. It's kind of interesting... Um, has anyone ever read the book Paradise Lost? John Milton's classic work. Well, I've got a quote from the first chapter of that. And this is an introduction, right? And, and so it's an older English-type script, so for all you grammatarians out there, you're going to say, no, this is not the way it should be, but this is the way it should be. Okay? Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. With loss of Eden to one greater man, restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing heavenly muse. Now if that's the only thing you knew about this book, what does that introduction tell you? Why don't you ponder that for a sec. It gives us a premonition of Adam's fall 
its dire effects while promising rescue through his second Adam. You see that through that? So if you knew nothing else about this book, you would get a, a sense of what is going to go on. And it's in the same way Paul begins this letter with his preview of an agenda for writing. He tweaks the traditional Hellenistic script for writing and lays a groundwork on which he will build his pastoral counsel to this church, to his dear friends who are in Philippi. Remember last week we discussed the background and history of this church, where he had served there and he saw converts come to Christ, Lydia from Thyatira and the Philippian jailer. And these were dear friends. So let's see the greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you look at Scripture, you should look at rep repeated phrases for emphasis, right? So if you see something repeated in Scripture, it's there for a purpose. It's there to emphasize something. What is the key thing you see in these first couple of verses that is emphasized? On three occasions. The name of Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this letter immediately we see that, that Paul is firstly talking about himself and Timothy being servants, or probably a better translation, slaves of Christ Jesus. What does it mean when you're enslaved to somebody or something? When you're enslaved, you're under complete submission. And in this case, Paul and Timothy are identifying the fact that they're enslaved and they're under complete submission to the Lordship of Christ. And this is really quite interesting when you think about the context of this letter, right? Remember, Philippi is a Roman colony, a city, a very wealthy city, and slaveship was considered something that was beneath most people. You had slaves to serve you. And in a really subtle way, what Paul does here, he says, actually, you folks in Philippi, understand that you are slaves to Christ. Just as Timothy and I are slaves to Christ or servants of Christ. You see, Roman society had taught the Philippine, uh, those of Philippi to, to hear nothing but powerless subservience in the term slave. They thought it was a, a, a powerless term to be called a slave. But Paul, by, by using this term here, and previously he would have introduced them to the Old Testament scriptures, where the title slave 
or more pertinently in the Old Testament, servant of the Lord, was applied to leaders like Moses, like Joshua, and like David. It's really fascinating because as you've read through this book, you may have picked this up. The only other time in this letter that the word slave or servant is used is in chapter 2. Let's read this. Chapter 2, verse 7, talking about Christ. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, stroke slave, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus himself, in his complete humility, takes on the form of a slave. He takes on humanity. He takes on flesh and blood to die on a cross. You see, Jesus honours the slave's role by assuming it in the incarnation. Have you ever thought about that? Christ is fully God and yet fully man, or truly God and truly man. And as he takes on humanity, he's taking on the form of a slave with the purpose of going to the cross. So, this whole concept of being a slave to Christ has huge implications in the life of the church. It has huge implications for the life of the Philippian believers, but it has huge implications for the life of this church, this local expression of God's purposes in this world. You see, above all, as a slave of Christ, you want to seek the interests of others above yourself. You want to seek the interests of Christ above all. That's what coming under the lordship of Christ looks like. It's bagging your own preferences and putting them aside for the sake of Christ. When you're a slave of Christ, you're called to love one another and love your neighbour as yourself. When you're a slave to Christ, you are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, self-control. These are things that, that should be fruit of our salvation. And these things we, we need to question in our own hearts. You know, what am I a slave to? Many years ago, some of you, who here has heard of Bob Dylan? Uh, now you're showing your age. <laughs> who has not heard of Bob Dylan? Okay, so Bob Dylan, he wrote a song 
many years ago, and it was this, you've got to serve somebody. And the main line of it was, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve someone. And that's what the concept of slavery to Christ is about. You need to serve someone. Now, for some of us, we may be serving our careers, our material well-being, at the sake of serving Christ and serving one another. For some, we may be serving in an unhealthy way the pursuit of excellence in some other area, whether it's sport, whether it's business, whether it's education. For some of us, we may place our families in a place of slavery above serving one another and serving Christ and serving God's people. So the question for you today is, who are you serving and who do you identify with? And these are probing questions, right? And I trust that you're serving Christ. I trust you can identify with Paul and Timothy as they say they are slaves of Christ. So that's the first thing we learn from this introduction. The second thing we learn from the introduction is that... uh, Believers in Christ have a special name. Because he says here, this is the recipients to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So are you a slave or are you a saint who are at Philippi? What does it mean to be a saint? Who here is a saint? You should all be putting your hands up. If you have faith in Christ, you're a saint. You may not think you're a saint, but you are. It's not something that happens after your death. (laughs) All right? You're a saint now. And to be a saint, you're holy and you're set apart and you're sanctified and you're consecrated for the works of Christ. That's what it means to be a saint. Generally, throughout the New Testament, this word talks about or it speaks about people who are purified and sanctified by the influences of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and is assumed of all who profess the Christian name. You are saints. That's not a bad place to be, right? You're a title of saint. We are all saints in Christ Jesus. And this small phrase has massive significance, especially the the, the term in Christ Jesus. Has massive significance. Because it's Paul's shorthand way throughout his letters for describing all those who have placed their trust in Jesus and are bound tight in him. So through Christ's obedience, right, and through his sacrifice and and through his resurrection, his life 
has become ours. Isn't that tremendous? His life has become ours. Jerry Bridges, who is one of my all-time favourite authors, and um, has written a book called The Great Exchange. And he talks at length about this, the great exchange, all that Christ has done, his death, his sacrifice, his payment for sin, and his righteousness has been put to our account. And that's amazing. And that's what he's talking about here when he uses the term in Christ Jesus. You see, his resurrection declares our right standing before God, the judge, and ushers us into a new life of freedom to love God. The small little word in traces the source of our hope to the fact that God has united us as believers to his Son and has given us a share of all that Christ has accomplished, including Jesus' worthiness to stand in flawless integrity before his Father. These aren't little concepts you place your faith in Christ, and I trust you have, because that's the only way of salvation. If you are in him, you stand as someone who is not condemned, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's no separation from his love. It's who we are in Christ and he does something very unusual in this letter, which he does nowhere else. He addresses the elders or overseers and deacons. It's unique in all of Paul's greetings. So he's got servants of Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus, with the overseers and deacons. And you say, well, why does he do this? So that's the question you ask. Well, why does he do that? Is that the question you ask? Probably not, but it's a question I ask. So we ask this question. Well, why does he include these, this body of leadership? We know elders and deacons relate to a leadership structure within the local church. And there's several options here. He, he may be um, doing this um, um, as an acknowledgement that they were the ones that sent Epaphroditus to him, to minister to him with a gift. So maybe that's why he included it here. Or maybe it relates later uh, to later instructions in the letter where he wants to ensure there's unity amongst the elders and deacons as they deal with conflict inside the church. Or maybe he's making the point that just as he and Timothy are slaves of Christ, so should the leaders in Philippi be living proof of a heart of selfless joy in serving King Jesus. Maybe modelling it as a servant heart and submission to the Lordship of Christ must be evident amongst the overseers and deacons. And these are, all, these are all options. I don't think there's any one right or wrong answer. I think it's a mix of all these things. 
And uh, it shows you the importance of leadership inside churches, and it shows the importance of character traits that relate to leaders. And I guess I just want to say here that be praying for your leaders. Be praying for those in oversight, those who are under shepherds. Because you realise the chief shepherd is Christ, right? He is the one that builds the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building the church. The official titles of church leadership, we're under shepherds under Christ. And pray for us. Pray that we have unity. Pray that uh, we are protected from the, the wiles of the evil one. So I think that's really the heart of Paul and Timothy here through this process. And then the third time we, we see uh, grace and peace being used here, sorry, um, the Lord Jesus Christ's name being used here, is in the final greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful salutation. And you can see the heart of Paul here. He wants to invoke the favour of God upon these saints. He cries out and he wants God the Father to just embrace them and lavish upon them the free gift of grace. The free gift of grace across those who deserve condemnation. Don't ever forget that. The good news of the gospel message is only ever good news because of the fact we are fallen sinners. We are separated from the love of God. Grace and peace highlights the astonishing exchange which is described in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, nothing but God's grace can give you peace with God. It's a lavish outpouring of his gospel truth. Grace and peace not only impact the forgiveness that God provides, but also transforms our hearts and stirs our affections towards the things of God. God's grace should always be a catalyst for stirring your affections, stirring my affections. And so how do we know about God's grace? Well, we read about God's grace consistently. If you're struggling to fathom what God's grace is, I would suggest you're struggling to read God's word enough to see the marvellous story in there of God's grace. As Newton said, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But it's not just saving a wretch like us, it's also ongoing. God's grace is the catalyst for our transformation throughout the process of life. 
said, receive grace and peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is to discover the joy of belonging to the Master who made and redeemed us for himself. That's what grace and peace means. So you see how these introductions are important, right? So in this introduction, we've learned that Paul and Timothy were slaves to Christ. The folks of Philippi were saints in Christ. And the, the, the resulting grace and peace comes from Christ. And that tends to show the flow of this letter going forward, as we will see and unpack. And then we move on to the next part of, of the chapter. I thank my God and my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is just extremely grateful for this partnership, for this partnership that they have in the gospel. He prays for them, he remembers them, and he says, you guys are there side by side, even though we may be miles apart, hundreds of miles apart, you're there with me and you're partnering with me. From the very first day until now, a span of around 12 or 13 years, from the time he first met them to the time this letter was written. And this partnership in the gospel, as we talked briefly about last week, I'm just going to highlight it again. It's, it's around this term of koinonia, partnership, participation. And this is a, a deep fellowship. And it has its relationship to our faith in Christ and fellowship with the Spirit and Partnership in faith and participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a term that is deeply affectionate. And that's what he's thanking God for. They're standing side by side. Paul might be the one next to the Praetorian Guard in prison, but he knows they're standing side by side together. I hope that's the experience of Mark as he partners with this church that he sees us standing side by side in the gospel as they proclaim the good news in Lithuania and Belarus. I hope we see that we are in partnership side by side with one another. As we take that step to see our neighbour next door and to proclaim the gospel. As we take the step with our our cursing, um, <laughs> sceptical workmate as we love and proclaim the gospel to them. Pray for those that you know who do not know Christ. And as you do, that will give you a heart to share and participate in the gospel. Share with one another. I'd love to see us as a church, as, as, as you have folks you're, trying, you're witnessing to and proclaiming the good news to, you share with one another, hey, could you this week please pray for such and such? So I'm sharing the gospel. That's participation and partnership in the gospel.
And that's what Paul does, even though he's hundreds of miles distance from this church. This is what the Philippian believers are doing. They're praying for Paul's ministry and they're partnering. A little bit more here, they give sacrificially as well, as we'll see later in the letter. Not only of their time, not only of sending Epaphroditus to, to comfort him, but also financially. Secondly, we see here a growth in the gospel in 1 verse 6. So you have this partnership in the gospel, and then Paul says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the key things in this letter that we're going to come across. Right throughout this letter, there's some key verbs which we'll see as think, consider, and reckon. And these are all verbs of, of uh, action. They might also be translated concern, agree, mind, feel, or think. And this particular one here, for I am sure could be translated for I am thinking. I'm sure, I know this one thing, that Christ, who began a good work in you, is going to bring it to completion, to the day of Jesus Christ. So every one of us are a work in progress, right? If we place our faith in Christ, we're a work in progress. And this verse is very encouraging because it states us that, yes, we are a work in progress and Christ himself is going to bring that work in progress to completion. It's what we call sanctification. Another word is transformation. And it's interesting, as you go through the sanctification process, you see there also is complete dependence on God within this process. You get that throughout this letter. This verse 6 and later in the chapter and verse chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. All these are references to the fact that God will do this work in us. But it's not a let go and let God thing. It's a God working in and through me. We are active participants in the process. Just as God is active in the process. So we have his prayer that he wants them to continue to grow, to mature, to become holy, to become sanctified. He wants them to grow together in the gospel. He wants them to understand grace more fully. Later in the letter, he commands them to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel. In, in chapter 1, verse 27, to work out their salvation and obedience. Chapter 2, verse 12, to become blameless. Chapter 2, verse 15. And these are 
all part of the growth and sanctification in the gospel. And the result of that will be these things, as we'll see in the letter. The result will be a unity and a selfless humility. Unity and a selfless humility. These were examples of what Christ was when he came and took on the form of a servant. And this is what we are being conformed to. He moves on. And then we see he talks about being partakers in the gospel. Verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. Firstly, you see as you read these verses just the immense affection that's going on here. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's a deep pastoral yearning which Paul has uh, for these folks at Philippi. And, uh, but his real concern is here, is that um, their partnership in the gospel, their partnership in grace, is the way he terms it here, that you are partakers with me of grace in my circumstances, in this imprisonment, but also in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. You are gospel-centred people. This is heart of prayer. And he says, you are, because I see this time and time again. And this is a deep fellowship that he enjoys with this church and deep fellowship that presses them on in gospel proclamation. And finally, we see a prayer that he gives. After all that's been said before, he finishes with these words. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Firstly, we have the start of the prayer that love may abound. And as you've been reading through this letter, you'll see to understand that at times this disunity was, loving was, love was not abounding. So right up front, he, he puts this out here, I want love to abound. More and more. But not a wishy-washy type of love. See what the, the, the words are that are associated with this? I want this love to abound with knowledge and with discernment. Two things that tend to be escaping our own very culture, right? Knowledge and discernment. It's about wise living. 
It's about having a biblical worldview. It's about developing in your families a biblical worldview. God is creator. There's male and female. There is a fall. Man and woman require salvation. Christ is the one who came to provide salvation. Faith in Christ and Christ alone is the only one and only way to provide salvation. And Christ will return and set up his kingdom. And all nations of the earth and all peoples of the earth will bow before his throne. And then there's the whole ethical commands throughout Scripture that build a biblical worldview. That's part of knowledge and discernment. We could do a separate sermon on that, on what knowledge and discernment looks like. But his prayer is here that as love abounds, that knowledge and discernment grow. And then he gives a result. So that. Every time you see a so that in Scripture, it's a result clause. It's telling you what the result should be. So when knowledge and discernment are there, you'll be able to prove what is excellent. And you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. See, when you have knowledge and discernment, you're making the best possible choices. You're proving what is excellent. They're the best possible choices. To make the proper assessment about what is absolutely essential regarding life in Christ and relationships in the partnership of the gospel. So make the best possible choices and be the best possible people. Be pure and blameless. To be pure is to be sincere without hidden motives or pretense. It's to be transparent in character. To be blameless has the notion of not stumbling. And then here, these two things have a present and future focus. So presently be pure and blameless, but focus on the future to be pure and blameless. And Paul also encourages them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul desires that they uh, be not only acquitted on the last day of judgment. That's why we have... um, The little phrase there, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So on the day of judgment, be pure and blameless. And he, he wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that are acquitted from any judgment. The NLT is kind of helpful here. It translates the verse this way. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. It's a nice way of putting. The filling is done by God through Christ. 
and it's very much like the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of righteousness can only come from Jesus Christ, the source of all life and goodness. And the purpose of this filling is for the praise and glory of God. So there we have it. The opening few verses of Philippians. Servants of Christ, saints in Christ, grace and peace from Christ. Partnership in the gospel, understanding and realising that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Partakers of grace, defence and confirmation of the gospel. And then a final prayer that says, I want you to abound in love. I want you to show knowledge and discernment, a biblical worldview, so that you may be approved what is excellent and you may be pure and blameless, consistently being filled with the fruit of righteousness that only comes from Christ. Why? To the praise and glory of Christ alone. No, this is self-perpetuating. A transformed life gives glory back to God. So be encouraged this week as you work through these. You're a slave, you're a saint, and you have grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite the team up. I'll pray for us as we uh, go into our final song. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful letter. We thank you that you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ. Father, help us to be consistently under the lordship of Christ. Help us to realise our position as saints. We thank you for your grace and peace that comes to us through Christ. Father, help us to always be involved in gospel work, the defence and confirmation of the gospel. And Father, we pray that your love may abound. Give us knowledge and give us discernment to live in this world that's so corrupt. Give us a heart and a biblical worldview on the things that are right, the things that are pleasing to you. Father, we pray that we will be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which only you can fill us with. We thank you that your grace is superabounding and is sufficient for all, all times and for all needs. Father, help us to live in the light of your grace this week. I pray these things in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen.